This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Looking tonight at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant, serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pray. Our Father, open to us your word this evening. We pray, Father, that in this late hour of the day, that you would meet with us, that you would give energy to our minds uh, to think about the things of this passage that are before us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Living in this fallen world as we do, lies bound all around us. The check is in the mail. I'll start my diet tomorrow. We service what we sell. Give me your number. The doctor will call you right back. Money cheerfully refunded. One size fits all. This offer is limited to the first 100 people who call in. You may have already won. Your luggage isn't lost. It's only misplaced. Leave a resume. We'll keep it on file. This hurts me more than it hurts you. I need just five minutes of your time. Your table will be ready in a few minutes. Open wide. It won't hurt a bit. Let's have lunch sometime. It's not the money. It's the principle. It's not you. It's me. But what is the biggest lie? What is the the biggest uh, lie of all? Is it that there are Nigerians who want you to help out with their money difficulties? Is it that Madeline Murray O'Hare somehow is still trying to stamp out Christian broadcasting? Maybe it's that Facebook is going to start charging a fee. Now that would that would be tough. What's the biggest lie of all? Well, it's none of these. Biggest lie of all is this. There's something out there that's better than what God gives. The biggest lie we face in this fallen world is to be deceived into thinking that somehow there's something better out there than what God gives, than what God has to offer. And it's easy to believe that. Because it's a very subtle, deceptive 
proposition. We see that beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3 begins merely with a statement. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There's no explanation for this serpent. There's no behind-the-scenes view here of, of even how this serpent, this subtle, crafty serpent, came to be in God's good, unfallen world, said to be good by God himself. There's no explanation behind the scenes of how Satan came to be. Sometimes we look at Isaiah 14 uh, with the fall of uh, uh, Babylon uh, referred to, uh, which has overtones of Satan. And then, of course, Jesus says, I saw well, you know, Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Connection is seen there, but we have to admit that uh, even that doesn't tell us all we would like to know, although it does seem to hint at some sort of uh, pre-fall fall on the part of the uh, angels of heaven, a rebellion uh, led by Lucifer uh, and angels being cast down. But there's very little that's definite about that even in the Scripture. We merely pick up with the fact that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we see Satan behind this. But this is very instructive. The whole passage is in these few verses, verses 1 through 5, for giving us insight into how Satan works. And giving us insight, therefore, into how our own hearts, fallen as they are. And that was not the case with Adam and Eve. If, if, if Satan caught them, how much more do we need to be on guard with a fallen heart that wants to resonate with the craftiness of the serpent? And so it gives us some idea of, of what to expect and what to be on guard against, what to look out for. Uh, basically, as we look at this passage, you can trace in it three stages of deception that, uh, that Satan, through the serpent, uses here on Eve, but I suggest in many ways come to function in our own lives. And so if we're aware of it and can be on guard against it, then it can help us to see through it. What are those stages? First of all, uh, we see the distortion, the distortion of God's word. Look at one through three. Uh, the middle of the verse, uh, middle of verse 1, begins a new paragraph in the ESV, having established that he's more crafty than any other creature. Uh, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, there are a couple things going on here by way of distortion. First of all is the, is the obvious one. Uh, did God say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no. He didn't say any such thing. Uh, but merely by throwing it out there, the idea is placed. It's kind of like in a courtroom when something's said that has to be stricken from the record, and yet everybody heard it. Uh, it's out there. The thought has been planted that somehow God's restriction is much bigger, much more broad than it actually is. And then there's a little slight, ever so slight hint of accusation, even early on, even at this point. Did God actually say? As if God has any right to tell you what to do at all. But there's this distortion of God's word taking place on the part of the serpent. Now, 
Not expect that. He's crafty. He's subtle. He's tricky. But then it's rather disappointing to find God's word being, word being distorted in a very place we would expect it not to be, and that's with Eve. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit that's in the tree of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. They're in the middle. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, where did that come from? God never said you couldn't touch it. It's not like this tree is somehow toxic. Just to touch it would poison you. God never said that. I suppose you could have gone to that tree and leaned against it there in its shade. He just said, don't eat the fruit of that tree. Did Adam tell her that? Just as a precaution? Uh, or maybe together, did they come up with the idea that, you know, God said not to eat from this tree. And we don't want to eat from the tree. But just to be careful, we won't even touch the tree. That's it. If we don't touch the tree, then we can't eat from the tree. In which case, they became the first Pharisees who, uh, you know, took God's law and then added extra law around it, which over time, they began to confuse their own extra standard with God's law. Uh, how did that originate? Or was Eve merely confused? We don't know. But we do know that Satan misrepresented God's word. And Eve went beyond God's word. And in either case, what God said is distorted. And so we see here this, this first stage is this misunderstanding about God's word. Now, there are a lot of people around today, even professing Christians, who have a real lack of understanding what the scriptures say. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, they've never read it, could be a reason, or they've never actually heard it preached or taught, uh, tragically, in churches that claim to be Christian, uh, maybe liberal churches, unbelieving churches, so-called, that long ago gave up God's word, and what comes from the pulpit is merely pop psychology or, or politics or sports or all kinds of things, everything except God's Word. Maybe they've never read it. Maybe they've never heard it preached. Maybe they've never heard it taught. Uh, for whatever reason, they have a very foggy grasp of what God's Word says. And for that reason, they're very easily misled. God helps those who help themselves. That's in there somewhere, isn't it? Uh, perhaps you've seen tests on exactly what did happen at Christmas. The Bible says there were three wise men, right? Well, no, it doesn't. You know, there are a lot of things even knowledgeable Christians may get tripped up on. But this just goes to show us the absolute importance of knowing what God's Word says and what it doesn't say. Drinking's a sin. God's Word says so. How many Christians' consciences ache because they think they've sinned, and they haven't. We need to know what God's Word says. We need to know what God's Word doesn't say. Because if our understanding of the Scriptures is fuzzy, then that just opens the door for Satan to come in and say, did God actually say? We need to know God's Word to head off this distortion, this misunderstanding of God's Word, so that on the one hand we don't distort what it says, on the other hand we don't add to what it says. 
I mean, frankly, for her to say, don't touch it, you shall not touch it's legalism. God didn't say that. At least it's not recorded in Scripture that he said it. So this first stage of deception comes in with, with understanding God's word, or in this case, with a distortion, with misunderstanding what God's word is saying. How well do you know the Bible? Do you know the Bible well enough for when Satan comes and throws temptations at you, like Jesus in Matthew 4, you can quote Scripture back at him? Even when Satan tries to use Scripture somehow to mislead you, takes it out of context, twists it, you can answer back because you know God's Word. You know what it says and what it doesn't say, and you can answer Satan with God's Word. Well, that's one stage. The next stage, then, is, uh, is just to flat-out contradict God's Word. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What's Satan saying here? He's making a statement about the command. He's making a statement about Eve. But above all, he's making a statement about God. When Satan says that, when he contradicts God's word, you shall not surely die. What he is saying is God has lied to you. You know, I'm your buddy. I'm here to break the truth to you. But God is the one who's deceiving you. God is the liar here. You will not surely die. Notice the very first doctrine in Scripture ever to be questioned, ever to be challenged, is the doctrine of divine judgment. There are churches today, so-called, that tell people, well, you know, just try your best. Everybody go to heaven. God wouldn't send anybody to hell. He's loving. You will not surely die. That's all it is. Very first doctrine called into question in Scripture, challenged, uh, unbelieved in, is, is judgment. You will not surely die. Now, of course, that was early on, Genesis chapter 3. Um, you tend to find that through the Bible, even in Israel, even though God said time and time again, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to destroy you, unless you repent, what did they do? They went on their merry way in their sin. They tried to silence those who threatened divine judgment. We saw that in our study of Jeremiah. They want to hear it. You, you will not surely die. That's what the false prophets were saying. Jeremiah was right. Of course, that's true today as well. It's perpetuated in TV shows and movies, not always, but often, where sin is portrayed in an attractive light and the consequences of sin pregnancy and disease, the misery of alcoholism, whatever it is, the consequences are often not shown. The sin is shown, it's made to look good, but then the consequences, they're not there. You will not surely die. Now, of course, this happened to be the point Satan challenged. Eve had said, the day you touch it, the day you eat of it, the day you touch it, as she said, lest you die. Satan said, you won't die. You will not surely die. So cause into question God's word. That's where many people are today. There's that idea that, yeah, God loves. We'll all go to heaven. It's all going to work out. I've got to deal with God. Everything's okay. Doing the best I can. That's where many are today. What about you? What about you? Do we recognize the wages of sin is death? Do we recognize that God's word is true and right and Satan's lying to us? Well, 
in our official theology, we would never say, there's something better out there than what God offers me. In our official theology, we would never say that. That's a, a term uh, that Ed Welch uses in, his, in, in one of his books, our official theology, what we say, what we profess to believe. You know, what the Westminster Confession says, what the Bible says. It's our official theology. But what is your real theology? We would never say, there's something better out there than what God offers me. But every time we sin, we say it. Every time we sin, we are saying God is holding back. God is the liar. Satan's telling the truth. There's something better than what God offers me. Every single time we sin. Regardless of what your official theology says. You are saying there's something better than what God has for me. What God offers me. Every time we sin, we are believing Satan and calling God a liar. Now, we wouldn't put it that way, but it's true. We're believing the lie, not God. We're believing you will not surely die. In fact, to sin is to say, in this, I think I will find life, or at least escape, or relief, or something I want that God hasn't seen fit to give. The biggest lie of all is that there's something out there better than what God has for us, than what God gives. So, first of all, there's this this fuzziness on God's word, this distortion. What did God really say, after all? Then there's this flat-out contradiction of God's word, which, of course, Satan says, and we look at that and say, how ridiculous, but every time we sin, we, we buy into that, at least to some degree. But then there's... This third stage of questioning God's motives, not just what God said, but why did he say it? What are God's motives here? We see that in verse five. Satan continues, you will not surely die. Then he continues, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, he's not content just to challenge what God said, to contradict what God said. He then goes on to, to, to cause Eve to question God's motives. You see, it's because God knows this, verse 5. For God knows. You see, he knows what he's doing. He knows all kinds of good things are going to happen to you here. And he wants you to have it. He doesn't want you to enjoy what he has. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God in the fact that he knows good and evil. The problem is there's some truth in all this. A little bit. A little bit. They didn't die the day they ate the fruit, did they? And when they ate, they did know good and evil. The problem was it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. The problem is they knew good and evil, but it failed to deliver that promise of wonder and life that Satan seemed to indicate that they were going to have. And we've experienced that. We obtained something sinfully. 
Even before you were Christian, you often recognized that in the end, the satisfaction, the pleasure, the, the sense of accomplishment was, was pretty passing. You know? Got what you wanted, and it was okay for at least for a while, maybe, but then after a while, you needed something else or wanted something else or, you know, again, we're not, not happy with where you were. And certainly as Christians, we would compound that with the ache of a guilty conscience. And, uh, sin doesn't deliver. It promises life. It delivers death. God doesn't want you to be like him. He knows all this, so he's holding out on you. His motives are to deprive you of something that's going to make you happy. Now, again, we wouldn't say that in our official theology. But when we sin, while we may not say it with our words, we're stating that, at least for a moment, we have believed that very clearly, that God is holding out, that God is keeping from us something that would make us happy, something that would open our eyes, something that would help us know good and evil, that we would... uh, have all kinds of experiences that, that would be rewarding, satisfying, fun, whatever. When we sin, that's what we say. We believed it, if only for a moment. We believed the lie. Of course, you know how this plays out. Verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food. Yep, looked good. Delight to the eyes. tree was there, uh, was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave it to some of her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, what's Adam doing all this? We don't know. Is he just kind of, you know, going back and forth? Well, we don't know. Hesitate to to blame too much. Uh, Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Just like Satan said. He, he said it would happen, and it did. And what did they see? They knew that they were naked. Oh, that's exciting. I don't have any clothes on. Neither do you. <laughs> you know, that's what they saw. That was, that was the big thrill that happened when they disobeyed God. They became painfully conscious of the fact they had no clothes on. They became self-conscious. It wasn't like that before. End of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why were they not ashamed? Because they didn't give it a second thought. They were not self-conscious. But now here, they become conscious of that. And so they sew fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They start covering themselves from each other. And they start running from God. Their eyes were opened, all right, but what they saw wasn't what they had been led to believe they would see. It wasn't quite all it was chalked up to be. And you know how it goes downhill from there till it only takes one more chapter for their offspring murdering each other. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan writer and pastor, put it this way. Satan promises the best, but pays with the worst. He promises honor pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. Promises profit and pays with loss. Promises life, pays with death. Adam and Eve found this out the hard way. And we found it out the hard way ourselves, time and again, if we've lived any length of time. It, it, 
Yeah, you you hear Eve when 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 the Lord confronts her, and it really almost makes you want to weep because her explanation is simply, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." You can you can feel the bitterness of those words. How does Eve describe her experience? Her eyes were open. It was wonderful. It was great. It was life giving. It was satisfying. No. She simply says, the serpent deceived me. I was had. I was duped. I was tricked. It's always best to learn from the mistakes of others. Sometimes we don't tend to do that. We seem to have to learn things ourselves the hard way. But where you can, learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from the mistake of Eve. Learn from the mistake of Adam, who also ate and sinned against God. You see, too often we question God. And believe the lie. By God's grace, we need to question the lie. And believe God. Believe his word. After all, what has Satan given you? God gave you his son. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. uh, A well-known one, to be sure. And yet one that is so instructive in the way of temptation, in the way of sin, in the way of Satan. Father, help us know your word. Help us have confidence in your word. And help us, Father, to believe that your motives toward us are full of love, fatherly compassion, saving grace. And Lord, when temptation comes this week, Give us the eyes of faith to see through the lie. It's another blessing of obedience to you. To know the blessing, Lord, uh, not of listening to Satan, but of listening to the Lord. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have believed the lie, that like Eve, we we were deceived and we ate. Father, we thank you that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us of the worst of sins and the most numerous of sins. But, Father, obedience is better than sacrifice. How much better, by your grace, to stand than to have to come and ask for your forgiveness. And so, Father, give us that grace. Increase our faith. Uh, Lord, to question the lie, to believe your word. We pray it in Christ's name and for his glory, our Savior, for his glory. Amen.